Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. All right. Well, we're back uh, with another Mental Models Podcast. Thank you for joining us once again in one of these conversations. But gosh, Dan, I'm having a hard time remembering what the heck we were going to talk about today. Huh. Yeah. What what was it? Uh, I know it's going to seem especially uh, silly when we... Oh, it's memory. Oh, Let's have a discussion about human memory. So when we talk about mental models, an enormous part of what uh, we perceive and what we see coming is based on our representation of what's happened in the past. Okay, okay. I'd like to take a little bit of time to uh, delve into the characteristics of our memories and also say some things about the brain. Um, So to start off with, um, memory researchers began to break up our memory into multiple subtypes. And I think one of the very good places to start is uh, the Atkinson-Schifrin model of memory which was extremely influential in the 1970s. And uh, they had to start off with our memories in something called sensory memory, which is incredibly short-lived, lasting just seconds, really. And it would just be a fleeting representation of what you just saw or just heard. And that's often enough to bias your behavior. It's almost subliminal, right? It's kind of like just this very extra little bit of representation, it just, just so you don't miss anything. And we overwrite our sensory memory all the time. A few things that get through move into what we call short-term memory. Uh, the modern term for that is working memory. So if I was to give you my phone number and you were to enter it into your contacts on your phone, uh, you could keep alive the digits for a brief time. And you can fit about five to six items comfortably within that short-term or working memory store. Uh, and you can lose it, right? So once you've dialed it in, it's utterly gone. It's not coming back. There's no amount of thinking through that's going to bring back what those digits were. Uh, those things that we really find important uh, and we focus on in our working memory, which is kind of what we think of as our conscious experience. If it's in working memory, you're actively thinking it through right now. Uh, if it's uh, particularly impactful, it will move on to your long-term memory which is the uh, very vast capacity that builds up all of our lifetime memories. And these are actually different within the brain. So there are areas of the frontal lobe and parietal lobes that seem to support the working memory representation as we actively think about information. And then when it goes to the long-term storage, uh, it seems to be written into the cortex in a more permanent form, often routed through the temporal lobes, which contain the hippocampus, which is an area many people have heard of. The hippocampus seems to have a strong role in laying down memory traces, and it's active very much as we sleep. So during REM sleep, you get a lot of hippocampal activity uh, associated with uh, laying down memory traces. And we can recall that uh, long-term information back into our working memory when we consider what happened with an event. Uh, The process is extremely fluid and dynamic, however, And this is where distortions of memory happen. So if we start to think through uh, the events of our life, we, in effect, change that memory as we examine it. And this is what happens with fishtails, right? They just morph over time. And it's not always someone outwardly lying. 
It's just that the exaggerations start small. And then the next time they examine that story or memory, it's kind of grown to the proportion it had been when they told it. And then it grows again and again. And sure enough, uh, you start to get these very strong disagreements among siblings about what happened in childhood. And they hate each other and think they're lying. <laughs> yeah, my sisters always had that issue. They would always come up with things that didn't actually happen. But uh, they seem to remember it that way. And it's funny. I think there were actually some instances where uh, I would tell them a story uh, about something that happened because I was a little bit devious when I was young. And they would actually remember that story as being so a memory that actually occurred. But it was, I made it up. It was a false memory. It was a false memory. Yeah, yeah there was a rather revealing experiment in the 1990s by Elizabeth Loftus who would uh, basically tell people in research studies that, do you remember that time you were lost in a mall when you were a kid? And it was just kind of a generic thing that seemed possible, and it it was a false memory. And sure enough, almost everyone in that experiment would start to say, oh, yeah, yeah, and I met this old guy. And they would start to fill in a lot of plausible autobiographical details, and they would agree with it. And uh, that led to a lot of expert eyewitness testimony by Loftus trying to emphasize that a lot of our memory is reconstructive in nature, and that sometimes it can be a false memory. If there's some kernel of truth or some kernel of plausibility, uh, our minds can kind of embellish that, and the reconstructive process can make it appear to us as if this really had happened. And uh, when others are involved and they're agreeing that this event had taken place, you, you start to maybe sort of fill in the pieces with what they're saying, and you, you can almost feel like, well, maybe there's that, a little maybe social that did proof in, in, in motion there as well, right? And we seem to have a autobiographical memory is that term for the things that happened in our personal life. And those seem especially vibrant to us. And that's where you get these really strong disagreements because like your memories are your representation of reality. And so when someone's disagreeing with your memory or the, how you thought it happened, it's like they're calling into question reality. But at the same point in time, we know that our memories are deeply, deeply flawed with respect to things that we've seen, like there's all sorts of issues that we've seen come to light recently associated with eyewitness testimony uh, that led to convictions of uh, various uh, suspects in criminal cases that are later exonerated as a result of DNA testing, which proved that they did not, they were not associated with the crime. But people will see something uh, or see someone and uh, they can act with a tremendous amount of assurance that that was indeed the person that they saw associated with whatever crime this was, it can be very unreliable. And it speaks to our general faith in memory. Um, when someone has gone on a witness stand and seems very credible, it's just hard to believe that that's not really true. And uh, this is where the challenge lies. It's, it, some people do have better memories than others, but we're all prone to some level of distortion. And this takes us to a topic called flashbulb memories, which was this notion that when some highly salient, uh, emotional, uh, oftentimes national event happens, you think of the JFK assassination or more recently, September 11th, uh, the thinking was that that kind of memory would be uh, stored in a, in a much more high fidelity manner than other memories. And researchers who wanted to test that would basically get testimonials from people on September 12th, 2001, and then test them again uh, a year later and two years later. 
And sure enough, even those very potent memories that feel extremely uh, salient to us and are infused with all kinds of personal meanings, and we rehearse them a lot and tell the story of it, uh, those also drift over time. So as uh, the years went by, people would add details that did not actually happen, and they would subtract away details or forget things that did happen, and the narrative shifts. And so I think that's an important lesson is even when it feels exceptionally real and it was a very important event, we always have to keep in mind uh, there's a chance that we have done some reconstructive thinking and kind of remodeled the memory uh, from what it had been originally. Yeah, it's also interesting. There's, there are some people that are experts in memory. There's uh, actually memory competitions that people engage in. Uh, there's a great book called Moonwalking with, by, with Einstein. Uh, that talks about uh, a particular reporter that starts following around the uh, memory championship competitions in the United States and then actually ends up competing within this uh, championship and becomes the U.S. champion in a given year, which supposedly was quite easy because Americans were much worse than the Europeans at the game. But the uh, interesting uh, methodology they would use is they'd use an ancient methodology of remembering things called a mind palace, where you would think about a particular geographic location that you're very familiar with and our ability to remember uh, locations like our home or uh, maybe a childhood home. Uh, you can remember with some distinction each of the rooms. So you would place various items within a given list in each room and then imagine walking through the room and encountering each of the items, but then adding some, if you can, perverse distortion associated with that particular item that gives it more salience in the memory. Dan, is there any uh, work that you've seen associated with some of these strategies that people can adopt to memorize various collections of data? There are really two things that you pointed out there, one being uh, distinctiveness is important. So if it's an unusual event, we are going to remember it later. So that idea of making kind of uh, like if, if jelly was one of the words, you could sort of walk through your mind palace and you imagine jelly oozing down the front door. And you imagine the stickiness of reaching out and touching the doorknob and getting it on your hands. Now you've just built a couple of cues into this, right? You, the smell of the jelly, the look of it, the movement of it, and even the feel of it on your hand. It's going to offer you more touch points to find that memory later. So people think in terms of cueing for memory. And then the second point which you bring up is structure. So if you can impose structure upon your life, uh, you can kind of interrogate that structure later and you will have less drift in your memories. So um, this brings us to another point which I wanted to mention. Uh, there's this idea of gist versus detail. Right? We think of memory as storing the details, but what we actually store is the gist of the situation. You know, if we were to later on try to reconstruct the details of this room and the microphones we're talking into and the color of the ceiling, we would do a very poor job, would be my prediction. But we could really summarize pretty accurately the kinds of things we discussed and uh, our feelings about uh, what we were uh, engaged with, and uh, the people involved, the emotional tone, that's sort of the gist that we tend to store. Um, we make meaning of things, and our perspective always is unique to us. So that's an important thing to keep in mind 
when memories become distorted is probably another person in the in the room had a different viewpoint. Uh, they may have had less sleep than you did. They might have had uh, something especially bad happen in their day. In other words, they see the gist of the interaction very differently than we see it. And so we all walk away with our own personal meaning. To get to the point, though, of how do you build good memories, it's offering more cues. So the more the context overlaps uh, when you're trying to retrieve the memory with where it was actually laid down, the better off you're going to be, simply because we use our sensory sort of elements. If you think back to the Atkinson-Schifrin model, which uh, we talked about earlier, the sensory memory store was the gateway to the whole process. If you can reinstate something about the sensory experience, you're likely to be able to find more details later. That's interesting. So, you know, typically if you're talking about a geographic uh, locus that you're using as a, as a structure to put it all together, that typically will have a lot of sensory uh, information associated with it, as opposed to a list of the presidents, right, in the United States where it's going to be very difficult for you to come up with a, a, a sensory notion by just memorizing various names. That's right. And uh, when you have interactive imagery, that can be especially helpful. So if you imagine the presidents in some way, visualize them and kind of imagine uh, one bumping the other off the podium as he takes the next crack at the job, that's going to be more salient for you later. It's kind of when there's just an arbitrary transition of power, for example, it's extremely hard to connect those, that sequence in a list, and you're likely to confuse a variety of the people. So if you can add more structure to the memory, that's very helpful. Uh, memory leads to a lot of predictable biases, two of which come right out of the timing. So primacy uh, effects or primacy bias is a tendency to remember with exceptional uh, clarity the early items that occurred. And that can be the first few items in a list. It could also be the first few events in a situation. That The problem with the primacy effect is it will be overweighted later, right? So that we put too much importance on those early events, and the middle events kind of get washed out and they interfere with one another. So you just have less memory for them. Uh, you also probably have longer to rehearse the primary events. If you recall the episode, you start at the beginning. The other bias related to this is recency bias. So whatever's happened just very recently has an oversized influence as well. Uh, and that may be because we have been actively thinking about it or because it's stored a little bit differently in our brains. We haven't had time to consolidate that information. So in some sense, the recency uh, of the memory lives in a different spot within our brains and primacy and recency are very hard to avoid. So all you can really do there is just be aware of them. So for investing, we've talked a little about doing an investment journal is a very good strategy. And that's one way to guard against the uh, weight of information changing just simply based on its timing. Yeah, I think it's always good practice when you're, and the salience comes into this issue as well, which is another uh, more instinctive uh, bias where something that's very uh, jarring emotionally. A lot of times, for instance, there can be a headline associated with a company. Uh, like the the most recent example is probably the Boeing example with the issues associated with uh, the the new uh, airliner. That Bad press really stands out. Bad press really stands out. 
particularly if there's a, an emotional content that is coupled with it. But when that's also coupled with recency, it may lead you to make irrational decisions in the quick and uh, uh, harried moment. So what typically we recommend is that if you have some change in fact that could change the narrative, review your notes and the summaries that you keep within your investment journal of your initial thoughts for the investment. Let those become the most recent information that you're actually acquired and put the new information you have in the context of what you already know before you make a rash decision. Another little bias that creeps in is um, it's known as the Pollyanna effect, which is this idea that we just tend to skew our memories as being a little more positive than they really were, uh, except when there's an emotionally negative event. That has a very potent influence uh, in the other direction. So even when it seems like it's kind of mundane stuff, we're often going to put it in more of a positive light than we, we might have otherwise. And that leads to uh, two other biases. One is the endowment effect. So when you've owned a position for a while, you simply have built up a personal history with it. And people kind of like telling their story. And you feel kind of good because you, you have details about, you know, you've lived the history of how, that, how pricing changed and whether things were working out. And we tend to be overly attached to those positions. And we might be reluctant to sell when we ought to because uh, we've just kind of got this oversized emphasis in our mind. It's also related to sunk cost effects where you um, essentially may be losing money, but you think it's bound to turn around. And that personal history with the stock can also make it maybe seem more likely that it will turn around. Yeah, a good exercise to overcome that is to look at your entire portfolio and uh, ask yourself for each position, if you were to think about putting that position on as a new purchase today, would you do it? And if you would, at what size would you make that position? And after you reconstruct the portfolio, if you compare it to the portfolio as it actually is, if there's a big disparity between what you would do based off of the most reasonable approach on putting the position on today versus what you already have, then, you know, assume, now mind you, you still have to think about transaction costs and taxes. Uh, because you can have some negative tax ra uh, ramifications associated with liquidating or reducing a, a winning position. But uh, nonetheless, if there's a big enough disparity between the two, then it may make sense to go ahead and reposition the position or in a lot of cases, just take it off because you've realized the outcome that you were anticipating. And this is all very hard to do. You, I think you can only approach memory biases with um, principles and discipline because, again, since our experience, our conscious uh, state of mind is always informed by our memories, um, they're very intertwined with how we're doing things. So maybe talking to others is a very good idea as well, just because they will bring um, a little bit of a different perspective on maybe the same events. And the more you agree the more you can probably decide, well, that I probably am calibrating this appropriately if others sort of saw this the same way I did. Another thought, too, is to think in terms of uh, a price target. So often you can put a price target on a particular position, and this can help you overcome endowment because once you come to that price target, then you reduce to a certain level or you take the position off. Uh, sometimes a price target may not be dynamic enough because it doesn't capture the, the growth of the business over time. For instance, 
if it takes two years to get you a price target, but at the same point in time, the business has grown significantly since then. Uh, and the prospects for the business going forward continue to be favorable. And it may be a multiple at which you actually choose to sell the position as opposed to just a flat price target. So we've talked about some of the negatives here, but there's always a, a counterpoint. And the positive thing about owning something for a while uh, takes me back to what's known as the spacing effect, which is this idea that if you uh, get presented with information and you kind of rehearse it repeatedly, you can start to space out your rehearsals longer and longer in time and retain the accuracy. So if we've just both uh, studied something that, that occurred, we should probably study it maybe every five minutes. And then we can up that to every half hour and then every hour. And then we can probably go days. And that's one way to retain an accurate um, assessment. And so that does come along when you do hard work on a particular position or you're very uh, intertwined with it. You, you may risk endowment effects or sunk costs, but if you apply that kind of discipline, uh, you actually do get pretty accurate memories out of that method, um, as long as your process is pretty good. Yeah, process is key. Okay, so with that, uh, we've talked a lot about memory, where, where memories come from, uh, how they distort, and when they're accurate. Uh, so I think to sum up our advice, try to visualize things, uh, try to make sensory representations that interact, uh, use spaced practice for rehearsal, Go out and get some sleep. Yeah, sleep is always helpful. And don't forget, you know, to reconsider things by reconstructing them as if you didn't have them to begin with to overcome the endowment effect. I think we'll remember this episode. Yeah, no doubt. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a jar. Please subscribe. Visit mentalmodelspodcast.com for updates on Dan and George's upcoming book release titled Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision-Making. Also available on mentalmodelspodcast.com are show notes, book reviews, and upcoming behavioral finance seminars with Dan and George. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Twitter. Please subscribe, and thank you for listening.